some uh, renovation and they said the ethernet might not work. It's working? Okay. Good afternoon, church. Welcome to our Sunday service with Sheepgate Fellowship. Hopefully, all of you had a wonderful week. It's a pleasure to see all of you. Um, yeah, I was just sharing. I was really insecure about the weather this year, or lately, because I'm like, why is it so sunny and not cold? And we're, uh, we're getting the snow. I, I don't know about you, but I like it when it snows during this season. I think it's appropriate, but um, let's praise God for that. Um, it's good to be with all of you once again. As we begin service today, allow me to remind you of our mission statement here at Sheepgate. It reads, we exist to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to love God, to love neighbor, to worship God, and to enjoy him forever. My um, hope and prayer for us all as a community and as the body of Christ. Uh, as we begin worship this time, I'm going to read to you Psalm 95 as a call to worship. So if you'd like to close your eyes and reflect on these words, I'm just going to read the first half of this psalm. If it helps, again, you can just close your eyes and listen to what this psalm says. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. The Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Amen. Let's begin this time with a word of prayer. In our own hearts, silently as we come before God, I want us to pray. A prayer, firstly, of repentance, uh, as we reflect on the sinful lives we live on a weekly basis and a daily basis, uh, as we come before a holy God, we remember to seek his forgiveness, seek cleansing, and seek a turning away from sin and a turning to him. So let's pray for that. And secondly, let's pray what this psalmist has written for us, that we would sing for joy, that we would shout joyfully, that we would come before his presence with thanksgiving, with singing, and in remembrance of how great our God is. So let's pray for these things as we come before him. Let's pray.
pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to draw your attention to the screen. I, I realized in the recording we had the wrong slides last week, so it's our mistake. Uh, to our shorter catechism, we're reading question 88. And the question reads, what are the outward means by, uh, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? I'll read you the answer. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, listen carefully, are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Um, the language might be a little bit foreign to some of us, but as we go through, of course, our confession of faith, we'll walk through all elements of these things. But focus on this, that the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, and what's mentioned specifically here are his word, the sacraments, right? So, Lord's table, baptism, and prayer. And all of these are made effectual right, to the elect for salvation. That is a wonderful thing. Let's not take for granted the word, sacraments, and prayer as benefits for the elect for salvation as a benefit of redemption. Remember these things as... Uh, we will shortly go into a time of praise uh, in remembrance of some of these benefits and as we respond to the great gift of Christ. Allow me to pray uh, before we sing songs to him. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the gathering of your people in this church today. I thank you for um, just their commitment, their heart, and their faithfulness. We ask, O oh Lord, although that we are not perfect, uh, that we are, of course, in remembrance of Christ, uh, who, uh, th uh, through, through whom are, um, we are able to find sanctification and have the, these benefits, these benefits of redemption, these ordinances, especially your word, your sacraments, your prayer, all of these things made effectual to us, and uh, we thank you for that. As we sing these songs, oh God, would you be pleased, would you be lifted and honored and glorified? We ask, oh Lord, that as we ran, uh, read from our psalms, or read from the Psalms in Psalm 95, uh, that we would sing for joy and that we would shout joyfully to you, for you are the rock of our salvation. May our hearts be filled truly with joy in your presence with thanksgiving. We thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, would you rise with us as we sing these songs?
You may be seated. I want to welcome all of you once again to our Sunday service. Thank you for joining us. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark as we read from Mark 2, 18 to 22. We actually read this text last week. We read, of course, verses uh, 14 to 22. We looked at the first half of this text in verses Actually, it was 13 to 22. We looked at verses 13 to 17 last week. We'll be looking at the latter half of it today in in verses 18 to 22. But to give us a refresher, let's read from verse 13 one more time. We read, of course, last week of the calling of Levi Matthew, the tax collector, as a disciple of Jesus. We saw his uh, very quick response in obedience to Christ and his authority. And of course, we saw Jesus uh, eating with uh, eating at the table with uh, the other tax collectors and sinners, uh, and that was of course condemned and rebuked by the Pharisees, to which Christ gives a response. And we looked at, uh, of course, the meaning of that text and the significance of that. So let's read it one more time, verses 13 to 22. We will read its entirety. Today's sermon will focus on verses 18 to 22. So once again, Mark 2, eight, uh, 13 to 22. I'll read from my Bible. And you can follow in yours. This is the word of God. And he went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Amen, the word of God. Well, we're going to begin this time with a word of prayer. And as we do each week, we'll look at the unreached people group of the day. These are uh, the Gujar of the United States. It's very interesting. We're getting an unreached people group from the U.S., of course, an immigrant country. Uh, we'll have many of these people. There are about 262,000 of these people living in the States today. They're mainly, mainly Hindu, uh, and then they're primary immigrants uh, from India, and um, some are Muslim, but it seems to be like they are majority of the Hindu tradition. None are Christian, and they're over, or there are about a quarter million of these people living mainly across the eastern coast of the United States. So we like to pray for them. And we'd like to pray for, of course, the churches of America, which there are plenty, uh, to reach out to these people and uh, hopefully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and that they would respond in faith. So that's the Gujar of the United States. A prayer today, a special prayer, 
Uh, this past week, I had an opportunity with some uh, PCA pastors to head down to Buffalo, uh, and I spent a day uh, with a church there. I'll share a little bit more about this church, maybe uh, informally, um, like just over a social conversation. Uh, but it's a church called Christ Central uh, Buffalo. Uh, so in short, they just go by CCB. Uh, but it's a very similar church to us, a group of about 50, 60 uh, second, second generation Korean um, church that uh, basically split out of their KM church to plant uh, a PCA church um, very close uh, to a campus, University of Buffalo, um, if you've ever been there. And um, I got a chance to meet up with the pastor, uh, I got a chance to meet the elders, and it was fantastic. And so uh, we're hoping to partner on a couple things where they um, will be able to maybe bestow some wise wisdom to us uh, in the future, uh, but I'll share those as those things come, but I did ask them for their prayer requests, and uh, so some of the prayers that they had, of course, they're looking for a location, very similar to us, right? They're looking for a permanent location. They're currently renting. Get this, um, uh, a Baptist, a white Baptist church there actually gives them free rent, right? So they're a little bit ahead of us, um, but they're looking for a permanent location, uh, so that's prayer number one. Prayer number two, they have an intern uh, who's uh, currently training, and uh, that's fantastic, so hope, hoping to be a pastor. And uh, of course, they're also praying for uh, their congregation. Uh, as they're heading, mainly, most of them are in their now 30s and 40s, uh, with uh, some of them having their first children, et cetera. Um, and so they're recognizing some new needs and concerns. Um, and so the pastor really, uh, Pastor Chris, asked for a prayer for faithfulness in the community as they go through different seasons in life. So let's pray for them. Uh, that's Christ Central Buffalo, and uh, we'll begin this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your text in Mark 2 as we read today. We read, of course, of the calling of Levi Matthew. His obedient response, may that be our heart as well, that we would respond to you in faith, recognizing the authority of Christ and call upon our lives. Father, we also see uh, a call to those who recognize that they are not righteous, Father, would we always see ourselves as sinner, unrighteous before you, yet moved by the regenerative work of the Spirit in us and by the grace that you bestow. Father, as we read today's text, may we gain and learn from it that our hearts would be moved and changed. Gracious God, would you be with the, Guj uh, the Gujar of the United States, the 262,000 of these people, all of which do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now responded, we ask, O oh Lord, for the Christians, the many Christians and churches scattered across the United States to be an advocate and herald of the gospel to them. Father, we also pray for Christ Central Buffalo. We pray for this church. We pray for their growth and faithfulness in their hearts, the diff numerous families who are going through di uh, different seasons of their life now, uh, many of which a few years ago were single and now are married and having children. Father, would you be with them uh, as they learn to be uh, leaders and examples in their community. As they look for a permanent location, would you be with them as well? And uh, hopefully by your grace, they would find that place. They're hoping to establish themselves in a community and be the salt and light there. Uh, would you be with Pastor Chris as he continues to shepherd his church and his flock? We thank you for his faithfulness for the many years he's been there. We thank you for their community, and we thank you for their example. We thank you, God, for this day. We come to you only by your grace and your love most demonstrated to us on the cross by your son, Jesus Christ. 
pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're getting to our text today. Of course, last week, once again, we read the first half of this text. We're looking at the second. Our sermon is entitled today, New Wine in New Wineskins. Being a late 80s baby, I'm not going to tell you what year, but you can probably figure it out. <laughs> Growing up mainly in the culture of the 90s, early 2000s, very few of you will resonate with me on these things. Uh, but being a baby of this time and growing up in this time, I'm more of a late 90s, early 2000s kind of person. Uh, but growing up in this time period in my adolescence and in my youth allowed me to enjoy such classic cultural phenomenons, such as Pokemon, Survivor. You guys know Survivor? It's like an island thing, you know, reality show. It was phenomenon. I lived through both the Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings franchises, releasing every Christmas. Christmas is boring to me now, because when I was a kid, every Christmas was like the new Lord of the Rings, new Harry Potter movie. That was like the, the thing for us. And uh, just, I was telling Liz this week, like, it's just, Christmas doesn't feel like Christmas anymore. <laughs> and MSN Messenger, I don't know if you guys ever used that, but that was, that was the thing, MSN Messenger. And a whole slew of TV shows that I could list, but you would probably, maybe some of you would be familiar with. Uh, but these TV shows, by the way, you could not stream or watch at a time of your convenience. You could not binge watch, right? No, no, no. You had to tune in at the exact time that that show aired and their commercial breaks. <laughs> so you had to record it on a VHS, VHS tape, right, if you know what that is, to watch later at extremely low quality if you wanted. If you couldn't watch it at that time. Or you just had to ask your friends what happened on the show, right? One show of interest to me because I was a major car guy, was this really major hit early 2000s show on MTV. Uh, if you ever had the channel MTV on your TV. So I had like a little bit of a cable package. So I got to watch a little bit of MTV. And in the early 2000s, there was this classic show called Pimp My Ride. Right, Pimp My Ride. You guys remember this show? This was a show that rode the popular wave of like, okay, this is like ancient lingo. So you gotta, you gotta like dictionary this, but uh, there was a wave of souping up your car. You know what that means, you're too old. Um, just basically means you make your car really cool, right? So no matter what the car was, they would turn these cars into like street gems, right? So you could take a beaten up Honda Civic and make it a marvel by adding like glossy paint, spinning rims. You guys know what spinners are? Probably not. Charles Sprewell, basketball player, you invented these things. Google it. Uh, spinners, spinner rims, a speaker system in the trunk, insane interior, like neon lights, like everything, right? The Fast and Furious franchise it was born in the midst of this cartooning like craze in the world. And this show was the epitome of fanaticism. Pimp My Ride basically took average beaten up old cars and then they made them into these brand spanking new beauties with all the bells and whistles. And the idea was to do this in secret, right, from the car owner. So usually it was like a brother, sister, family member, friend, you know, taking someone's car and then bringing it in, getting it like, you know, redecorated, and then surprise, and they reveal it at the end of the show. So I was on uh, the internet recently, and I found an article detailing this show, right? So this person who used to watch this show happened to write an article about the show. And they write how about, about how the final products that were aired were actually like horribly constructed. Like, they were just terrible, right? Someone had bought a car uh, that was once on the show off of Facebook Marketplace, and upon inspection, realized just how poorly built everything was, right? Uh, nothing was made to last. All they did was take a really ugly-looking car, gave it some makeup, and called it a day. They took something old and made it look new, 
by covering with it with aesthetics. But as people drove these cars, they realized quickly how really not functional these vehicles were and how the cars were simply not made to last. Like one person in the article, they got interviewed, and they write, yeah, they put like this really intense speaker system in my trunk, but I no longer had a trunk. So like they couldn't like move anything, right? Um, so it was like, you know, a blessing and a curse. Many of the participants on the show, uh, it was revealed through this person's, you know, uh, research and journalism, how they just weren't really satisfied and, and they were really disappointed at how short-lived their so-called pimped cars were. A lot more work should have been done to take that which was old, make it like new, and then build it to last. But that simply wasn't the case. And so we find ourselves here in today's text, a warning that that which is old and broken cannot simply just be patched. Nor can the new simply be put back where the old was. What we're taught today is that the new wine must be placed in new wineskins. So we have two points to today's sermon. I think it's going to be brief. The first is this. 18 to 20 teaches us fast when the bridegroom is taken. And we'll explain what's, what that means. The second, in verses 21 to 22, the second point is this. Do not put new wine in old wineskins. We'll talk about what that means too. So let's look at the first point. Verses 18 to 20, fast when the bridegroom is taken. Now, very little is recorded for us in Scripture about the disciples of John the Baptist, also, but we do see episodes in which they do appear. And we see very little about the disciples of the Pharisees. That's pretty rare in, in Scripture to hear about. But we are able to grab sort of bits and pieces of historical data uh, regarding these groups through parts of Scripture and historical records, such as those written by Josephus. What is intriguing here is that we have a rare occurrence of conversation that centers around the disciples of John, disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of Jesus. Although it may appear that there, so that they in this text, when they came to him, so they came to Jesus to ask, the they here is referring to the common people, right? So depending on your translation, they'll insert that bit of information for you, or in my case, in the NASB, they just translate it word for word, so it just says they came. But in some of yours, like for example, the ESV, I believe, writes like the common people or some people, something like that. Uh, so some of these people observing, disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist, and then the disciples of Jesus are like, hmm, these two groups do this, his do not, I wonder why. So they come to Jesus and they ask. So that's the they that we're referring to in this text, right? So although it may appear that their bone to pick is with Jesus' disciples and their actions and their lack of fasting, that critical question is really being aimed at Jesus himself. Why do your disciples not fast? Right? So the question is really being thrust at Jesus, not so much the disciples. In the prior episode, we saw the Pharisees ask the disciples, why does your master, Jesus, eat with sinners? after observing Jesus' actions. And here we see the flip, or the reversal, where the people see the actions of the disciples, and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples do this? It's a shift as to whom the questions are being asked. 
The fact that both the disciples of someone like John the Baptist, who was, who was trusted as a faithful man, and the disciples of the Pharisees, who were regarded right as religious men for their time, um, it only adds sort of to the odd nature of this dialogue. You have one party of men who we could view, or they would have viewed as viable, and another not so much. Right? In the Christian perspective, we would see that John the Baptist would be trustworthy source. The Pharisees, not so much. But both are at play in the scene. Now, this may not, not be a deliberate attempt, particularly to antagonize Jesus and question his authenticity. But what is growing out of this exchange is a revelation of who Jesus is. And so the question really is this. How come you, Jesus, are unlike everyone else. Right? John the Baptist, religious guy. Pharisees, religious people. You are the new religious guy. Why are you unlike the rest? What makes you different? Now, what is remarkable for us as believers today is the response that Jesus gives. Some, we are so uh, saturated, I guess, with biblical stories and narratives, that sometimes when we read something like this, we're not taken aback. Like, read the story simply, and you should be sort of startled by the response. Because the question is, if you read verse 18, they come to him and ask him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The answer should be, well, here's why they do not fast. And an answer should be given. But read Jesus' answer in verse 19. Is it not peculiar to you? Look at his response. While the bridegroom is with them. What? What kind of response is this? It's, it's odd, but for Christians, we're so used to hearing these responses from Jesus that we don't really just take a moment to think about how odd and peculiar his response really is. Uh, for those of us who've been going through John together on Thursdays, like, we've observed this multiple times, right? Whether it be his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, or his interaction with, you know, um, or in Mark, I guess we saw the paralytic who's lowered at his feet. Like, just this very startling, these sets of startling responses from Jesus to very simple questions that are being thrust at him. It's very peculiar. Because when we read this, we tend not to think of this as pretty. We're just like, oh yeah, that's just Jesus being Jesus without not really thinking about how odd these responses are. But the oddity is not really where I want to focus. I want to focus on the nature of the response that Jesus has given us. So why do the people bring up the issue of fasting was the first thing that I thought about. Like, what, is it a big deal that they weren't fasting? Was this like a sinful thing to do? And why is it that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting? I am curious of that. Why were they not fasting? So answering these questions will assist our understanding and framing of today's dialogue. So the first thing, fasting. Why, like, why is this an issue? Fasting was a major practice of religious piety, so dedication, during this time of Jesus that stemmed from Pharisaic and religious legalism. Fasting itself is not wrong nor condemned, right? Jesus himself would fast regularly. We see this. Most fasting during this time was usually just for a day or two, uh, but it was done quite often. Some, some records show in like uh, the Mishnah, for example, records rabbis would fast weekly, like once or two, one or two days every week 
or so. So they would do this pretty regularly, but they would make it known that they are fasting. It was like very well known to the public. Oh, that guy's fasting right now. And it was viewed as an act of deep religious commitment. However, like much of Judaism at this time, what was lost was the heart intent behind these commitments. So here's James Edwards, who writes in his commentary for us, noting on fasting. He writes, fasting had become, in Jesus' day, a prerequisite of religious commitment. So they wanted to see you fast to see, oh, this guy's legit. He writes, a sign of atonement, of sin and humiliation, and penitence before God, and a general aid to prayer. That's how fasting was viewed. Now, these are all elements of good things. None of these things are bad, right? Understanding atonement, sin, humiliation, penitence before God, and seeing fasting as a general aid to prayer. These are things, I think, truths that we would convey even today about the practice of fasting. But however, how these men or how these people were viewing fasting was this is the outward sign of a truly holy God, right? And this is how they were really looking at a lot of these pious acts of religion. So these have elements of good things, but they were also lacking on the Pharisaic end, a genuine heart. Much like how we treat our sacraments today, eating and drinking of the Lord's table without much heart or thought or understanding, rooting that action. Their view of fasting was that it demonstrated commitment. So you can see why they came to Jesus to ask, how come your disciples are not as religious as those disciples? Does that say something about you? Or are you trying to convey something about fasting? You could understand the curiosity that existed. What is significant, however, for the Christian today and for you and I is to observe in these verses, or in this verse, verse 19 specifically, is the first of two analogies that Jesus uses in his response to the questioning at hand. That first analogy is that of the wedding and of the bridegroom. The question at hand is why his disciples did not fast. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus first sets the scene of a wedding, the bridegroom being himself. The bridegroom is the groom, by the way, if you're not used to this language. The bridegroom is the groom, not the bride and the groom, right? The bridegroom is the groom, and Jesus himself is that groom, and the disciples are the attendants. During weddings in Jesus' day, even the most religious people, even the Pharisees, would attend with hearts of celebration, and they would partake in the festivities wholeheartedly. Their religious commitments were not compromised during these wedding celebrations, but even the fasting rabbi, as Jewish records teach us, even the fasting rabbi would temporarily put aside his piety for the sake of celebration. Consider that. You can see why Jesus uses this analogy to these men. The idea was simple. While at a wedding celebration with the bride, at, or bride and the groom at hand, the party is on. But their absence would mean the end of that party. But here's the major difference here for us to note, is that in Jesus' analogy, he depicts a specific moment in which the bridegroom will not leave on his own accord, but it reads, will be taken away. Now this Greek word taken away means to be torn, to be ripped off. The same word is used later in reference to the garments and the patch. The bridegroom will be stripped from them. And then Jesus says, they will fast. 
most weddings would go on until the, all of the guests are tired and they all go home. For it is the duty of the bridegroom to attend to the very last guest. But in this wedding, brothers and sisters, the bridegroom will leave first, and he will be taken from the guests. This is a sign of things to come, and for believers, I hope, we can catch on to exactly what Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus' response to why his disciples do not fast is that a time will come when somber prayer and commitment, including fasting, will be required in the absence of himself. That time will come for these men. But while he is with his disciples, just as when the bridegroom is in the party at the wedding, the guests are to celebrate. They are to feast. How could you not celebrate and eat with him? This speaks, of course, profound, to, uh, profoundly of who Jesus is, pointing to him as our great bridegroom in whom and through whom we can find joy and celebration so long as we are with him. So to the, to the question of why do they not fast, Jesus' answer is because I am here with them. Now that may, that may not be like a very, um, I guess, the, an answer that really answers the question at hand. But to the Christian, we can understand why that is an answer to that question. Of course, to the men who are asking, it would have been quite odd, I assume. But let's look at our second point, because I think it's really fascinating how this particular section concludes. The second point in verses 21 to 22 my point is this, do not put new wine in old wineskins. It's just the end of the passage, right? If that first analogy speaks of Christ's arrest and death and ultimate uh, taking away from us, right, to dying on the cross, and it te uh, teaches us of the true nature of who he is, then this second analogy, which is comprised of two small metaphors, speaks to the nature of Christ's work. The first analogy in verse 21 is crystal clear especially to my grandmother who has had to repair many of my pants. For those who have sewn know that patches are but band-aid solutions. They work, but they won't last. They simply extend the life of a garment. They do not give new life, especially in this particular case that Jesus is outlining as a metaphor. In the case that Jesus presents, we have an unshrunk cloth that is sewn onto old garments that have torn. When washed, the new cloth shrinks. And then the garment tears again. The final fate here is what is important, the non-lasting nature of such a temporary solution. The same is for the second metaphor, where new wine is poured into old wineskins. Wine was kept in bags back in those times instead of bottles as we have today. Over time, these bags become worn, and so when they are worn enough, they burst when wine is poured into them. Thus, new wine was always kept in new wineskins to prolong its shelf life, but like anything else, it wears and ultimately cannot be used. There is a shelf life, an expiration date to these things. The purpose and meaning of these parables, parables is absolutely clear. Jesus is speaking of the old religion under the law, new religion under him. It's the same religion, I should make that clear, right? It's still God's people, right? God's covenant people. But, He's speaking of 
under the law and under grace. It is not to say that the old is bad. I want to make this clear. Sometimes people like to um, portray Jesus as being uh, anti-Old Testament. But that's certainly not the case. He speaks of the Old Testament in positivity. He quotes the Old Testament, if that's not evidence enough for you. But the Old Testament and the law, he is the fulfillment of. Those things are pointers to Christ. They are but mere shadows of the Christ to come, right? And so we must understand them in proper light. He is simply saying that the time for the old has run out. It had served its time and its purpose, but now the new and the best was at hand. New wine was here, and it must be placed in new wineskins. Jesus is both the new wine and the new wineskin. He is not an addition to the old, nor is, any nor is he an attachment to the old. He is new in the sense that he will accomplish everything the old could not. He will be everything the old could not be. And his effect will be everlasting once for all. The old was but a pointer to the new. Remember the jars of water used for purification at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. There Jesus turned those jars of water, which were used for religious purposes, and he made them into the best wine. Of course, to the exclamation of the guests. He took that which was old, and he made it new. Not like the pimp my ride guys, right? He totally made it new. He made it totally something else that it never was. He didn't modify. He didn't tune. He brought something new and yet a continuation of that which was old. The fulfillment of the old. This is why Paul is adamant in the letter to the Galatians that Christians are not to fall back under the law, although the law is good. It is simply not as good as Christ himself. So even the Old Testament proclaims that salvation is not achieved through works, but that the faithful are rewarded for their faithfulness. Here's my conclusion for today, as we just remember two very simple points. Perhaps nothing stood out to you as being necessarily profound, right, to the seasoned Christian. But what is profound to me is the challenge that is thrust to me as I reflected, or was thrust to me this week, as I thought about this text. There's an important challenge and thought that I think is being propelled to you and I today in this text. And like, I'd like to leave you with that this week. We're told here that the newness of Christ himself is not something that simply covers the old, nor does it simply fill the gaps of the old. It is totally radical in its coverage and its power to consume of all that is old in us. The Jews needed to relinquish their lives, uh, their life's order to the authority of Christ and his gospel by faith, to have its full effect truly take place in their lives. The question that rotated in my mind this week was whether my faith in Christ was totally all-consuming, totally encompassing of all that I am, or whether my gospel is a footnote of my life, of whether Christ and his accomplishment on my behalf is simply the appendix of my life, simply a space filler, something I just write on my profile, 
a title I put before my name. Brothers and sisters, do I see Christ's gospel taking over my life in every area? Or is it simply an accessory to the life that I live? Let's take a moment to think and pray and respond to God's word today as we reflect and think about this particular question. Let's pray. worship.
Father, we thank you. We thank you for uh, your word, its teaching, and its truth that has been bestowed upon us. We ask, O Lord, that these things would not be forgotten, but rather remembered and uh, taught to those around us, exemplified in the lives that we live. We ask also, O God, uh, that through the provision you've provided for us in our daily lives, all the resources we're given, uh, that we would give joyfully and cheerfully to you, for this church, and for its ministry, for its growth and its continual effort on your behalf to be your herald for your gospel. We ask, O Lord, uh, that uh, as those who are believers and members of the body of Christ, that we would give uh, and we would give graciously, um, generously and graciously from our hearts uh, for your namesake and for your kingdom on this earth. We thank you so much and pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to end off with a couple of announcements, or I guess a few announcements. First and foremost, welcome to all of you. Thank you for being with us here today. I don't think we have any newcomers. I might be wrong. No, I don't think so. So uh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, it's good to see all of you, and it's good to have you uh, in the sanctuary worshiping together. Welcome to all of you on stream, if you're there. Um, offerings can be sent two ways. First and foremost, via e-transfer to sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. And secondly, we have a plate back there. <laughs> Offering plate is back there with envelopes. So if you'd like to give that way, uh, you can definitely uh, give that way as well. Just make sure you put your legal name there so we can offer your tax receipt at the end of the year. By the way, that season's coming, so I'm going to have to uh, get some information from some of you. So it should be a good way to formulate a contact sheet. Um, but yes, we'll definitely collect that information. And then we'll issue your charitable tax donation receipts sometime at the early, early January. So um, please be on the lookout for that. Please join us for fellowship today uh, after service at our church. Um, it's like, uh, you know, you guys have been complaining about, you know, soup and rice. So we got some other stuff for you, okay? No more. Um, but we're going to have to control some portions because... Uh, some of you eat like two people's worth, so we're gonna have to control that. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. <laughs> um, not naming names, but you guys can stare at them right now. Um, we'll have our confession study today at church as well, following our uh, lunch or late lunch. Uh, so please join us for that. Uh, discipleship group signups are gonna be done online, so I'll send you a link. So this is how it's gonna work. And starting in January, we're gonna divide the both the men's and the women's groups into smaller. Uh, segmented groups, and we'll try to consider geography and other things in those designations. Um, but we also don't want to force this on anyone um, or assume that you'll be part of it. So uh, it will be a year-long commitment. So we're asking you to commit January to the end of December of 2023. Uh, and so we're looking for uh, just you to sign up. So all you have to say, hey, I'm down. I'd like to be part of our DGs. Um, I'd like to be part of these groups. Um, and yeah, so we just need you to sign up so we know who's in. And so we'll give you the link for that. And once we have signups done at the end of this month, we'll designate those groups. Um, on that note, we're looking for assistance in this area. Uh, so I'll be in touch sometime this week. Some of you have already conveyed to me. I am interested in helping. Uh, but we're looking for basically a leader and co-leader for each of these groups. So we're looking to have the groups around four to five people per group. And each group will have two sort of co-leaders, so one person in charge of the material, one person kind of co-assisting in the case of the absence of the leader. 
Um, and they'll facilitate uh, the gathering of the meetings, location, time, and uh, just facilitate uh, the teaching that is done in the DGs. So both on the women's side and on the men's side, I'll be in conversation with you soon. And we'll have a meetup sometime at the end of this month to discuss how uh, that schedule will work. So if you're willing to, start praying about it. First of all, all of you should pray about it, but uh, if you're willing to help out, if you're like, hey, um, you know, want to step up and help in this area, uh, we'd love to have your assistance in this. Uh, some of you I might directly ask and talk to, um, and then we'll get all of that together. So that's how DGs will work. We're going to have a standardized material across, so all the groups will be studying the same thing, um, and the leaders will have meetings with me, well, lessons conveyed, and then passed down. Okay, so that's how the DGs will work, and uh, we're hoping to have all of you participate. Everyone is definitely welcome, as long as you're a believer. So as long as you're a Christian, we'd like to have you in these subject groups, okay? Um, Thursday Bible study is on pause. December's a busy month, uh, so we're gonna pause it. And so we'll reconvene, hopefully, in January, uh, if it's popular enough. Um, so yes, please join us uh, in January if you're able. Christmas party this year, December 22nd, do not forget. Of course, our party planners uh, graciously provided a link and, and ungraciously provided uh, a poll for <laughs> our white elephant gifting. But yes, again, just please um, respond ASAP. Um, our party room limitation has actually been lifted. Um, I, don't even, I didn't even know it was a COVID thing. Apparently, this party room fits 100 people. I don't think so. Maybe if we like stand literally like next to each other. Um, but yes, uh, so we're not limited to 50 anymore. Um, it's actually limited to 100, uh, which is like obnoxiously too much. So anyways, you don't have to feel the pressure of, am I taking someone's seat? Um, yeah, just please come, all of you. Uh, please be there. We're going to have a good time. It's a good way to end off the year, too, as we celebrate. Um, and we'd love to have you there. So December 22nd, evening, Thursday night. I think it's going to be around 6, 6.30 p.m. So please be there if you are able. Uh, other things we're looking for in the new year, uh, we're, we really need a lot of assistance. So FYI, uh, I'm going to be going under care with the PCA starting in February. Under care just meaning... Uh, I will be under the care of the PCA. So a pastor will be overseeing me and uh, we're gonna be partnering more on these things. Uh, I've invited some PCA ministers to speak at the beginning of next year. So you'll be hearing me less and more like ordained ministers come in, uh, share with us and you'll be able to bounce questions and ask things about the PCA to them. Um, and we'll talk about membership, we'll talk about deacons, we'll talk about elders. Uh, for Christ Central Buffalo, I've invited some of their elders to come speak with us especially with our men, to talk about what eldership looks like, what a ruling elder does, what his function is, how you become a ruling elder, what are responsibilities, what he went through, the struggles, and all those things. Um, and they're like second-generation Korean elders. And they're only 40. They became elders when they were 30, right? They were deacons at, like, 25. He was a deacon, became an elder at 30. He's been a uh, ruling elder uh, for 10 years now, just had his first kid. Like, um, loves Toronto because he loves the food. So he's going to visit a uh, few of them and uh, we'll be able to discuss and converse what that looks like. Um, so I think it's just really cool. I got a chance to share with them a little bit about our church story and they're like, hey, you guys are like, it was like that Spider-Man meme, you know, like when they're like pointing at each other. So many similarities. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool to have a church like that so close in proximity to be able to 
share some ideas with. So uh, keep that in mind. So that's early next year, but we're looking for thus uh, some structure and some leadership in areas that we need. And so if you're willing to serve in different areas and capacities, uh, I'd love to know so we can get you plugged into different things because we really need to start uh, forming these things more uh, structurally. So please uh, pray about it, how you would like to serve in the new year and be part of our direction moving forward. So keep that in mind. That's my prayer for you. Uh, pray for Korea. We got wrecked by Brazil. Uh, I think we're still mourning that. So whatever, Brazil's out too. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyways, let's rise and off the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us stay our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. God bless you. Please take some time to mingle, fellowship, and then uh, we'll head over to the other building and enjoy some food.